everything you do needs to be strategic because otherwise you're not moving in any particular direction. I mean, you may be coincidentally, but if you don't know where you're going, there's no way you can be on your way to get there. So I think that strategy and planning and goal setting is paramount to not just real estate, but anything that you do, anything that's worthwhile. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. We are a family on a journey towards financial and location independence. Each week, we interview successful real estate entrepreneurs about their chosen investment strategy and rate it based on how much money it took to get started, how long it took to educate themselves, how passive it is, and whether or not they could do it from anywhere in the world. Welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. If you like our show, the easiest way for you to give back is to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions on how to do that. We would be so grateful. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Hey guys, Neil here. Uh, Before we get to this week's show, I want to make you an offer. You can do a video chat with me. It's completely free. There's no pitch. This is not a sales pitch. I don't have any kind of a mentoring program. I'm not selling anything. This is literally just a way for me to connect with other real estate investors and being a working, uh, working dad with, uh, a son at home. This is much easier for me to do than trying to go to a couple of real estate meetups a week. So again, if you're interested, anything you want to talk about, if you're an experienced investor, a brand new investor, we can talk about anything and everything you want to talk about with uh, real estate investing. Just go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash connect and uh, fill out the, the form there to schedule a call. And I look forward to speaking with you. So let's get to the show. Greetings, friends and families. I'm Neil. You're listening to the Road to Family Freedom podcast. I'm flying solo this week as Brittany has a previous engagement. So our guest this week is a West Point graduate. She's served in the Army for 12 years. She's a mom, a successful real estate investor who's built a portfolio valued at over $2 million and cash flows over $6,000 per month within her first year as an investor. Anne Haley, welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, it's good. To, it's good to meet you. So you. two or three years ago, you're a career army officer, uh, a West Point graduate, a mom, a military spouse. Fast forward to today, you're out of the military and you're a full-time real estate investor. Was this how you envisioned your life going when you uh, graduated from West Point? No, not even close. <laughs> so um, talk to us a little bit about what change the course of your career? So we um, had our first daughter about almost four years ago now. We were both active duty at the time. And I kind of thought the day would come when I would have to kind of get out of the army. I thought that I didn't think we'd be able to do the dual military thing, mostly because my husband's in a very specialized unit in the army. And so he's pretty limited to where he can go and what he can do. And, you know, trying to get my career to fit that mold or really follow him was next to impossible. So we, we knew it was going to be short lived. Likely we didn't think we'd be able to do, you know, the full 20, but we were willing to try. And, um, that didn't last very long. We had our first daughter and I went back, I had three months of maternity leave. And then I went back to work three days after that, I got put on orders to go to Afghanistan And my husband was already scheduled to go to Iraq. So what we would have had to do was 
find, you know, basically send our six month old daughter. She would have been six months when I left, when we both left, we would have had to send her to our parents and get her enrolled in daycare. And it just would have been crazy, you know, crazy for her, crazy for us. And we both knew that's not what we wanted. So I, we talked that night, I resigned the next day. And five months later, I was out of the army with zero plan, stay at home mom. My husband was deployed, had a baby. It was, it was 60 to zero overnight. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So how did you go from there to your state? Now you're a stay at home mom to a deployed spouse, uh, which is, you know, you're basically a single mom. And how do you go from there to, you know what, I'm going to complicate my life by starting to invest in real estate. Well, I always wanted to invest in real estate and it was, it was always at the back of my mind. And I, I thought about it for years and I like vaguely looked into it, but didn't really take a whole lot of action. And so as a stay at home mom, I, I really struggled with, you know, the long days, the long nights. And I, I mostly struggled with losing my network. You know, I went from being with a group of like-minded people who were pursuing something similar to all of a sudden being a stay-at-home mom and hanging out with someone who couldn't talk. And I didn't adjust to it very well. I I had a lot of adjustments all at the same time. New mom, like getting rid of my career, leaving the army, which is a huge transition. And I just, it was really, really hard for me. And I just, I needed something for myself. I needed to, I needed to work, but I also needed to have control over whatever it was that I did, because I, I wanted to spend most of the time with my kid. And now, now I have two little girls and I want, but I also need to, needed it to be able to transfer wherever my husband went. You know, I, I wasn't a very good wife at the time either because I was, I was resentful, honestly, like he was, he was off deploying, doing what he trained for, doing what he wanted to do and making a difference. And he was important. And I was at home changing diapers. And it was it was very hard for me. So I kind of slowly got into it. I bought my first rental property, put too much cash into it. I know that now, but I didn't at the time. But um, it was a great investment. It still is a great investment. And I thought I was going to have kind of buyer's remorse after purchasing that property, but I didn't. I truly like learned how liberating real estate can be. And I was just hooked after that first deal. And luckily, I think because it was such a, it was such a sort of secure deal, I guess, nothing's really secure, but it's about as secure as you can get in real estate. And um, that's what allowed me to make the jump to the next one and the next one. And since then, I've had some, some significant setbacks. So I'm glad those were my first experience because I might not have gone on to the second one. Yeah. You know, we, that's been our experience. I discovered real estate probably three years ago and, and, uh, right around the time that we had uh, a very young son, I've got a full-time job and you, you start aiming, you start wanting to aim for the fences. You want to start aiming for those home run deals because you, you like you, you're listening to the podcast and you hear people talking about the financial freedom they've started and, and you, you come out and you want to start hitting triples and home runs. And, and what you really want to do is go out and get the batting practice, go out and hit, hit the singles. You know, you're not going to, you're not going to retire on the first deal. You're not going to retire probably on the first 10 deals, Um, but you're going to learn and you're going to get your bumps. And I think it's better to get your bumps in the shallow end of the pool than to get them out in the deep end where the sharks are swimming. 
Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So talk to us about the numbers on that very first deal. So the very first deal I bought in Clarksville, Tennessee, which is where I happened to be living at the time. My husband was stationed at Fort Campbell and it's, that's about, it's about an hour North of Nashville for anyone who doesn't know where Clarksville is. And I ended up buying a new build, you know, I had a one year builder warranty on it in a really kind of highly sought after neighborhood. There's, there's the best school district in that area is really sought after by renters and the houses out there tend to be really big, like 3,000 square feet, four bedroom, bonus room kind of things. And so I found a smaller house, three bedroom, two bath, 1,800 square feet, I think. So smaller than the normal one, but really ideal for a rental. And I was able to get into it, I believe at 220 was the purchase price. I had to put 20% down and, and got had to use my husband to get qualified because at that point I had next to no, and I don't think I had any income. I was using my GI bill, but they didn't, the bank wouldn't count that. So had to put my husband on it. And sort of after that is when I realized, you know, I want to, I want to figure out how not to have to get him on everything. I want to get it all in, you know, under entities, under, under business structures and be able to do it myself. So that was kind of a little bit um, surprising that I actually got the bank loan, but also kind of made me realize I didn't want us to be personally tied to it, which I'm sure we'll talk more about later. But anyway, so I purchased it for 220, put 20% down. I think all in with closing costs, it was like 60 to $64,000. I saw the building, like I didn't build it from the beginning, but I bought it a couple months before it, before it was done, you know, it was done being constructed. And so I saw the equity grow a little bit just in that time period. So I, I walked in with a little bit of equity, not, not a ton, but that was kind of cool just to see it appreciating even before I purchased it. And, um, it has appreciated since, and that my mortgage payment on that is 1131 and there's an HOA fee of $30 and my tenants are currently paying 1700 on that. So that one cash flows very well. I can't, I don't know the exact number. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, cash flows really well, you know, and for being a new build, I think most people would never even think that that's possible. So that's, that's really cool to, to be able to see those numbers play out. And, and I did invest a lot into it. I, I didn't realize that there were so many other ways to get into deals. I just thought you went to the bank and you paid 20%. And after that, I kind of, that was like the majority of my savings or at least what I was willing to commit having just had a baby. And so I had to kind of get creative after that. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. So you got it. You're all in for about 64,000. It, uh, your, your expenses, your PITI is, you know, basically 1200 a month and it's renting for 1700 a month. Now, you know, if we're, if we're going by the bigger pockets, 1% rule, you're definitely under the 1% rule, but it's a brand new build. So your CapEx is low. Your maintenance should be low. You're in a nice neighborhood. So your vacancy, you know, hopefully your vacancy, has it been vacant since you bought it? Nope. It has not been vacant. Yeah. You know, and, and this comes back to, you know, people, so many people when they're starting off, they first discover bigger pockets or they discover real estate investing and they start hearing the the rules of thumb and they start thinking of rules. They start thinking, figuring it's a rule of thumb that, you know, oh, oh God, if I can't buy something for the 2% rule, you know, then I shouldn't be buying it. I'm not going to be making any money. But the reality is it's just a rule of thumb. 
know, you, you, you yeah. still want to dig into the numbers and each property is going to be different. Each market is going to be different. And, and the way that you, whatever strategy you're using is going to be different. So it was a great first deal for you. Is it something that you would do? Is it something you would do now knowing what you know? I would not put that kind of my own money into that same deal. No. But if I had to do it all over again, start from the beginning, I would still have made that investment knowing what I know now, because like I said, that one hasn't been vacant one day. I've, I've, I don't actually think I've had to do a single repair because the first year it was, you know, builder warranty stuff and got an inspection toward the end of that and had the builder fix a couple minor things. My tenants have never even paid the rent late. They are taking great care of the property. So, you know, for all the, um, you know, like not number reasons, that was a great, great investment and it helps me sleep at night. So now I know $64,000 on one. I mean, I could do, I could do almost four deals with that now. So yeah. So doing it all over again, I would, but I wouldn't do it right now where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> and again, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's a, you'll often hear, experienced investors say, yeah, I wouldn't have done that, done it that way going forward, but you still learned an enormous amount doing it. Absolutely. All right. So, and does that mortgage payment include the taxes as well? Cause sometimes in some of these communities, the taxes can be pretty high. Yes, that does. Um, ta- it's, so that is all the whole pity is 1131 gotcha. and taxes in, in Clarksville are fairly low. I rarely would you see it more than a hundred dollars a month in that area. So Gotcha. And it's outside a military base. Are your, are your tenants military or? No, these ones, the current ones are not. It's a little bit away from the base. There's a lot of other industry going on out there as well. These actually, these are uh, Korean nationals who are here. They came over because um, Hankook is setting up, set up a plant rather, and they came for a short period of time. So they're actually, Hancock is paying their rent, which is really nice. Oh, that's great. And which is probably why they've never been late and never will be, yeah. <laughs> or at least part of why. But yeah, so there's a lot of industry out there too. It's not just the military. The military largely controls the rent because they have, military gets what's called a basic allowance for housing and most of the rent numbers sort of fit that mold, which is why I chose to buy a property a little bit smaller than the rest of them because I, I still got the same rental rate for a smaller yeah. property, which meant a smaller purchase price and a smaller mortgage payment. So, Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So where did you go from there? What was the next property? So after that, like I said, I didn't really have much more money to spend, but my husband was deployed. And so we, we downsized to one car and I was able to take $25,000 to a flip. I had $25,000. And the next thing I wanted to do was a flip. I didn't know if I wanted to, to flip long-term, but I knew that I was going to learn so much from that process. So my dad is also in construction. So he and I did a flip together and we put a lot of sweat equity into it. I was eight months pregnant when we finished it. So I was, I was laying vinyl planking with a giant pregnant belly. And we, we ended up having to do a little bit more than we wanted to because we didn't build any relationships beforehand. We didn't have contractors. We didn't have anybody that we knew would come through for us. 
So we were calling, you know, setting up all these appointments with contractors and 90% of the time they didn't show up at all. And then the other half of the time they would come and give us a bid and then not come back for the work. So I, I learned a lot about that. I learned a lot about contractors and the importance of kind of setting up your team before you get involved. But as a result, we had to put a lot, a lot of sweat equity into it. Gotcha. So talking about the, uh, before I want to get, I want to talk to you about finding those contractors. Uh, but talking about the numbers on that, you bought, you're all in for 25 or a little more. Well, so I had 25,000. I purchased a property that was $25,000. It was in hardly a C-class neighborhood and just needed a ton, needed basically a full, a full, full flip. It had really great bones though. So we, so listed at 25,000, I was able to get seller financing. So he asked for 50%. So I was in at 12,500. I can't remember the exact terms of the loan, but it was a long term. It was like, I want to say 10 years, either way, the mortgage payment was about $200 a month. So it wasn't anything crazy. It was like comparable to the, the interest rates, you know, a lot of times seller financing rates can be much higher, but it, this was not the case. So got in, had just very, very low overhead. Um, my insurance policy was like next to nothing. It was like $45 a month, $200 on that. And then it was just utilities. So ended up using that other, I think I went close to 14,000. I ended up getting a no interest credit card and putting a little bit on that. And then I sold after commissions, I can't remember what I actually sold it for, but I know that after commissions, I was at $41,000 was sort of the seller proceeds and ended up making about 13000 off that investment. So like a 50% return on that investment. Gotcha. Uh, and how, how long did you hold it for? Four months, I believe. We, we finished it really quickly. We finished it in about five weeks. And then put it on the market, got an offer within the first couple of days. And those buyers made it all the way to the night before closing and then just completely changed their mind. And we ended up getting to keep their earnest money, which was only $500, but it covered, you know, that 30 days that I was holding onto it. And then we put it back on the market. This was right before Christmas. We ended up getting an offer on Christmas Eve and closed in January. So I want to say it was four, four and a half months total time. Gotcha. Any issues with the buyer getting financing because of the price of the house? A lot of, sometimes mortgages that a lot of banks won't do mortgages on houses that are uh, worth appraised for less than fifty thousand dollars. So this one, I I think appraised at sixty five, and I think we I think we sold it for fifty nine, fifty seven or fifty nine, and I have to look at the numbers. And I actually do blog posts on all of my flips, so you can really see the numbers. I say I think a lot of people don't really understand how much goes into the selling side. You know how much it really costs to sell a house, and then depending on your financing, it can be really expensive on the front end fees too. So on my website, I have, um, this was my, it's called like my first flip by the numbers and it breaks okay. all of this down okay. to kind we'll of put, show we'll put, how that whole we'll put it in the off. show notes. Gotcha. All right. So how did you find that deal? That one was on the MLS. It was just listed by somebody who just was motivated and want to get rid of it. And I had just heard about the seller financing thing. I didn't really know much about it. And I just asked the question and guess I got lucky that he had the ability to do it. Yeah. A lot of, how did you, how did you phrase it? Cause a lot of, a lot of uh, sellers, if they're a real estate investor, they probably are familiar with it. If they're not, 
they they're just totally foreign. How did you how did you approach them about that? I just told them, I think I offered initially, um, I said, I have 10,000 to put into it. And I offered a little bit above asking price for the financing. And he came back and said, if you can do half down 12,500, he agreed to my terms. And I actually got to know him after we closed because I, my first mortgage came due and I didn't have any way to communicate with him. And I found his number on the closing documents and called him and we actually like developed a, a little bit of a relationship and he was a great guy. So it's kind of cool to, to build that relationship and see that through. But yeah, definitely a unique situation. His son was living in the property. He used some, dis- he got out of the army and was using disability to pay for it. And he just like became an alcoholic and had a drinking problem. So they got him out of the situation really quickly. He moved in with them in Boston and then they just had this property vacant in Tennessee and they gotcha. just wanted to get rid of it. So gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So let's talk about building contractor relationships. Cause you're not doing, you're not swinging the hammers anymore. Are you? No, d- definitely not. And now that we've moved away, moving away was probably the best thing that could have happened for my business because I was only doing one flip when I was in Tennessee, like kind of hands-on managing, doing some stuff here and there. But now that I'm out here, I have no choice but to trust other people and hire everything out. And it's now I'm able to do two, three at a time. And it's, it's been, it's totally changed the the trajectory of my business. Yeah. You know, uh, Tim Ferriss talks about that a lot in uh, for our work week. He talks about you, if you're totally involved in the business and everything runs through you, you're not going to be able to grow because there's only so, only so many hours in the day. There's only so many things you can do. And once you, you might be surprised, once you remove yourself from the day-to-day operations of, of a business, you that is what really allows your business to grow. Yes, absolutely. I agree. So contractors are the bane of the existence of many real estate investors. You know, uh, there's a great joke uh, that I love to tell about contractors where somebody, some kid says, um, three kids, three boys are sitting around bragging about their dads. And like, you know, my dad's the fastest man in the world. He can, he can shoot an arrow at a target and he can outrun it and get there before the arrow. And the next <laughs> kid will say, no, my dad's the fastest man in the world. You can shoot a bullet at a target and my dad will get there before the bullet. And the last kid says, Psh, my dad's the fastest man in the world. He's a contractor. He gets off work at two and he's home by noon. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. So how, how did you go about finding good contractors? Well, <laughs> a lot of pain really. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm still not quite, quite where I want to be. I've got a couple really good ones. But kind of my experience with contractors has been that they can do really great work on one project and then maybe not do great on another project. And so it's hard to find that consistency, even when people that you think you, that you have on your team that are loyal to you, that really get it. It's just, I, I think it's just a circumstance of what they have going on in their lives. And I've just seen, I've seen them do great on one thing and not so great on another. So you know, I guess the part of that's human nature, but I'm still working on it. And I think the best thing that you can do is just network, 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 let people know what you're doing, get recommendations. I think recommendations can be a really great way to find good contacts because you, then you know, someone else's experience. Um, but again, I've had that totally bite me in the butt. I, I use a contractor on a really, really big high end flip 
that I did in Nashville and my lawyer actually recommended them to me. And he said, had great things to say. They did some stuff in his house. He had full confidence in them. And I, of course, obviously have full confidence in him. (laughs) And so I hired them and they did a terrible, terrible job. I mean, worse than terrible. And they ended up just walking off the job when it got tough. And I am now pursuing a claim against their insurance and it's just been a pain in the butt and it didn't have to go. It didn't have to be like that. They just kind of got a little bit over their heads and then we're just unwilling to admit that even though I think they knew it. And I think that's why they walked away. So anyway, I thought those were my guys. I thought those were going to be the ones that could take me places, but didn't really pan out that way. So that being said, I'm still kind of looking for, that general contractor, that, you know, maybe project manager that can take some off my plate while I'm here. Like I said, I've got some good contacts. Like I've got a great HVAC guy. Um, I've got a good plumber, but I don't have somebody that can kind of run the whole show for me. And that's what I'm currently looking for. And unfortunately, you know, even when you get the recommendations, you still have to try them in order to figure out if they're, if they're your person or not. But I think that being upfront and honest with them is the most important thing. I tell people every time I talk to them the first time I say, um, I'm really type A, I can be really controlling, but I want to hire you to do your job, which means that you need to do it well and you need to communicate with me no matter what. Otherwise, I'm going to be all up in your business and it's going to take away from what I need to do. And that's not what I'm trying to do here. And so you can, you learn a lot about a person just by how they respond to that statement alone. And that's, yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at right now. (laughs) Yeah. So do you have any kinds of, you know, you're in Monterey and most of your investments are in Tennessee, uh, including the flips. Do you have any kind of boots on the ground right now that are sort of minding the store? And, you know, I have friends who um, say, you know, they're in Las Vegas and they say, if I'm not on the job site every day, I'll show up and there's a bunch of contractors sitting around drinking 40s. Have you, like, how are you managing the day-to-day contractors? So I have um, somebody who works for me who goes and does walkthroughs. I, I kind of call her a project manager, but she's she's not really a project manager. She's more just kind of like an inspector and just boots on the ground. And then my sister actually lives in town in, in Nashville as well. So she, if I need something, you know, on a weekend or I like have an open house and there's mud all over, I'll just ask, I'll just pay her to go over there and mop up the floors real quick. So she's really good in a pinch. And then I have a great real estate team. I'm actually a licensed real estate agent, but I prefer to kind of source that out as well. I'm, I'm not, I don't really enjoy doing that side of it. So even when I'm selling a house, selling a flip, I have somebody else do it for me. Gotcha. Um, and I trust them. I have a good stager. They give me really good feedback on what's going on. Cause usually they're coming in, in the middle of the project. Anyway, I have my realtor kind of checking it out here and there. I have my stager kind of coming in getting ideas of, and sometimes, you know, she'll be like a design consult or something like that. So I just try to keep as many people as I can in there as often as I can, which is good for my peace of mind. However, it has in this particular one, I was just telling you about with the contractor, it bit me in the butt a little bit because there were just too many chiefs and everybody was telling would, would maybe tell them what to do. They would just assume that they were speaking on my behalf about something. And it could have been anything like at one point 
we had somebody walking through the house and there was just a light fixture sitting on the floor. It was supposed to go right in the doorway. And my stager was like, let's just go put that under the cabinet. And my contractor was like, I was told not to install that. I was told to put that under the cabinet. I said, well, for, for that walkthrough, sure. But I still need you to pull that out and install it. That's part of the job. So stuff like that happened a lot. And, and it was my fault for kind of setting up that situation. And I had to reiterate to my contractors multiple times, like, yes, there are people walking the house. And yes, there are going to be people checking on things here and there. But at the end of the day, you work for me. And I, these things need to come from me. And any change needs to go through me. Okay. So you're, you've got sort of an active business going on. You're doing some flipping. How many flips do you have in progress right now? Just trying to sell this last one now. And I've actually got a contractor running around right now. We're, we're trying to buy two this week, but the, there's, it's slowing down a little bit. The deals are, we, we spent all last week looking for a deal. We went to probably six or seven properties and none of them made any sense. Gotcha. So we're in the market for two. I'm hoping to buy two this week, but just haven't found it yet. Are you still finding them off the MLS? No, I have, I find them all sorts of ways. I've got wholesalers bringing them to me. Some of, some of the real estate con- agent contacts that I have will bring pocket listings. Facebook is a great way to find properties. Facebook marketplace has a lot of for sale by owners um, and a lot of people who don't necessarily understand maybe what their property is worth. So you might get some equity and just really help them out of a sticky situation. Let's see. And then so occasionally look on the MLS, but it's, I had, I don't think I found one off the MLS in a while. All right. So, but that's not how you've, you now have a portfolio of over $2 million and it's cash. You've got, you know, properties that are cash flowing. Can you talk to us sort of what you give us the quick overview of kind of how you built those first collection of single family rentals. And then, I, and then I want to get into your commercial property as well. So I, um, I bought, uh, 19 doors in my first 18 months as an investor. And I just kept getting creative on how to find the money for those. Um, I, I bought that first one and then kind of ran out of money and then I did the flip. So I turned, you know, the 25,000 into 40,000. So that got me into my next one, which was outside of Nashville. That was a triplex. Did actually got seller financing on that one as well. It was a rather distressed property. It required a little bit of flipping. My And then I found out you can invest your IRA. So I bought a duplex with my IRA and a triplex with my husband's IRA. And then I came across a 10 unit that I, I just was really intrigued by, but didn't think I was anywhere near ready to buy that. At, at that point, I'd been investing for about eight months. But I had a mentor who said, you know, put in an offer and let's just see what happens. And I did and, you know, got got this property under contract, had to go through the commercial loan process, which I was I didn't think was ever going to get qualified for a loan because I had this brand, fairly new LLC. I'd done one flip in it. I did not want my husband to be on that loan. I wanted this to be strictly a business thing. And somehow I was able to get that loan and we I had to bring 20% down to that for that one, which I thought about bringing partners in and, you know, to help me get that down payment. That was like $130,000 down payment. But then we found when we found out we were leaving Tennessee to come out to California, we decided to sell our house there. And that's where most of the proceeds from the most, all the proceeds from that went into the 10 unit. And before, you know, before I got into investing, when I was still in the army, we were both working, we put a ton, we just paid down that loan as much as we could. So we had about $100,000 in equity. 
in just four years off of that house. So that hundred thousand went directly into this 10 unit. And then I finished another flip closed on that. So that, that was like the other $40,000 required for that. So that money never even came to me, literally wired from one title company to another and found myself in a 10 unit property, which isn't something I thought I would do for 10 years. Yeah. So you were able to basically, you didn't have to, to bring in any private money uh, for that down payment at all. It was all basically, it was equity, equity from your first home that you sold in there. And then also a flip, correct? Yes. Okay. I hadn't used anyone. I hadn't used other people's money. I've only ever used other people's money on flips. I've never used it for my own portfolio. And that's just because I think of my own portfolio as my long-term strategy. And it just doesn't make sense for me to leverage other people's money against that. You know, it might up for other people, but just not in my head. (laughs) Gotcha. Gotcha. So before we get, I want to dig more into the 19 doors. I'm sorry, into the the commercial property and find out more about it. But you, you briefly talked about, you know, buying two small multifamilies with your IR, with your retirement accounts. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you went about doing that, the pros and cons of that and things like that? Yes, absolutely. I think this is such a great tool to build wealth. So you first have to self-direct your retirement account, which you can do in multi, in a couple different ways. You can set up an LLC and sort of self-manage it, or you can use a custodian and they'll make sure that you follow all the rules. They have to review all your transactions. They have to sign off on all your documentation when you buy and sell. So I chose to go that route. I don't really have a particular interest in tax law and things like that. So I let them do that. Um, it only costs about $400 a year in annual fees to do that. And they manage everything. It's, they basically, your account is basically like a debit account and you have to request all your bills, everything through that custodian. So it can be a little bit timely, but it's, it's easier than I think most people make it out to be. And so once you've set yourself up and you have your account, you can be a 401k, it can be an IRA, Roth or traditional Once you have that set up, you purchase real estate just like you would any other way. And you can either, you can find seller finance deals, you can purchase them outright using the cash that's in your account. And then you can also find some lenders that will loan against your IRA. So it's really no different than any other property. And it's just another way for you to access some, some liquid reserves. Gotcha. And did you, are there loans on those properties or did you buy them free and clear? Uh, mine I bought free and clear and my husband's is seller financed and it's, it's seller financed at a pretty high rate, uh, but it's still cash flows. Okay. It's, it's a great investment and kind of, my husband wasn't so sold on investing his money in property because he just was afraid we weren't going to have enough diversity. He, just, he was just afraid we were going to have everything in real estate. And I, I was like, okay, I totally respect that. Like we'll just keep going. And I got, his statement um, in December of last year. And besides what he had contributed, his entire account only grew $900, you know, only gained $900 over that entire year. And my IRA was bringing in $1,100 a month. And so I just showed him those numbers and I said, this looks like a no brainer to me. Are you sure you want to keep your money here? And I, another thing is he was paying every month, he was paying, you know, like $450, whatever, whatever the max is divided by 12. Every month we were putting that into his account. So yes, it was growing, but it was coming out of our account. So I said, you know, once we 
once we have a property there and tenants will be paying that and then some, and we just freed up another $450 a month. So I was a, it's, that's just such a great resource to leverage. Yeah. You know, it's something that uh, Brittany and I talk about a lot is that one of the nice things about real estate income is that essentially it's somebody else is doing your saving for you. Uh, You know, the average, uh, financial advisor will tell you, you know, well, you should be maxing out your IRA. You should, you know, both of you should be maxing out your IRAs, your HSAs and all that. Uh, and that's great. And you should be doing that, especially if your income is, is purely W2. But one of the nice things about real estate is that, you know, if you can get somebody else to make those contributions for you, then that frees up your income to do other things for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Now, because they're free and clear, there's no, you're not having to pay any unrelated business income tax on them, correct? It's all, uh, there's no UBIT, correct? Correct. And then uh, same thing with the seller finance. They don't consider that to be, they don't consider it to be leveraged. I don't believe so. Um, I mean, I'm just putting my taxes together for this year, um, but no, last year they, they just said no, as far as I know. Okay. All right. So let's go back to the, the 10 unit, the commercial property there. Now I've seen pictures of it. It appears to be a a collection of uh, A-frame cottages, correct? Exactly. Yep. It's 10 separate A-frame houses. And where is it located? It's located right outside of Fort Campbell in Clarksville, Tennessee. And uh, you bought it in June, correct? Yes. And are you are you in the midst of rehabbing it or are you, have you already done the rehab? We are slowly rehabbing it. We have done three and a half roofs so far. So the roofs, you know, are basically the entire exterior of the property. So we've done three and a half of those and we've done four full interiors. Um, so we basically do roof based on priority. They all will need a new roof here shortly. And then interior based on priority as well. So we've had two, we've had turnover in two units since we bought it. So those two have been flipped and then one was vacant. So we flipped that one and we turned that into a corporate rental. We furnished it and we have a long-term tenant in there. So normal, normal rents are between 800 and 900 and this tenant is paying 1250 a month for a nine month lease. And we just, we do pay for the utilities and the internet in there but we're still, we still within, this is the first lease with the corporate rental. And so that additional, we spent $2,500 furnishing that and we will have that paid off within seven months. So it'll, you know, the first tenant will pay that off. I'm, I'm a little worried. We're going to have a little bit more vacancy with this type of rental, but our property manager has a really good relationship with a lot of the companies that would feed us this type of tenant. So hopefully we won't see a lot of vacancy. But um, to answer your question, we are slowly renovating it. I I can only really do basically a half a roof every two months at this point. Um, so I, I had my CapEx account set up and that's gone. <laughs> and so now I'm trying to like slowly build it back up. So as soon as it's built up, I pay for, you know, buy something else, pay for something else. And I actually have a tenant in there who's a good friend, business contact, someone I met through church. He's a really great guy. He lives there for free. He's a contractor and he does so much work for me. He's managing. I still have a property manager that does the, you know, the leasing and the marketing and all the legal stuff, but he's just there on site day to day, just taking such great care of those tenants 
and really building rapport and helping to create a really awesome like exterior atmosphere for them. Cause it's just a little oasis for, it's a lot of um, young military couples and they, they just love living there. So I think we'll see very little turnover as a result of him being there and taking good care of them. Gotcha. And so it's 10 units and how many are currently up and operational? They're all operational where we have one vacancy, um, I guess, that we had an application put in on Friday. So hopefully someone will be moving in there shortly. And your plan currently is to do all corporate rentals or some of them long term? Well, there. so it's just one corporate rental right now. I think we'll keep it at that. Hopefully after this tenant moves in, we won't have anybody moving out for a while. But I think once we start to hit turnover, we'll kind of assess whether or not that makes sense. Gotcha. And is it um, is it an area where it's legal to do shorter term rentals, you know, Airbnb? It is, yes. And I just haven't really even pursued that, mostly just because of brain capacity, bandwidth. Yeah. I, it's just not something that I've had the time to to really look into. And, and honestly, it's, it's definitely a situation that I'm just a little bit intimidated by, which is what I tell people all the time. Don't be intimidated. Get yeah. in there and learn about it. And so I just haven't taken the time to learn about it. Well, it's, it's where we got our start with short-term rentals. And, and I'll, I'll echo what you just told yourself, which is don't be intimidated. It's not nearly as hard as people think it is. And so get out there and do it. Yes. Uh, thank really, you. I it's, need actually, that. <laughs> it's really, it's actually really rewarding. Once you get, it's a little bit of work, a little more work in the beginning, but once you get your systems up and running, it's, and, and I, I can almost guarantee you're probably a systems kind of person. So yes, <laughs> you'll do <absolutely>. great. <laughs> so with that, you know, almost all my real estate investor friends who are former army are all rock stars at two things. One building a strategic plan and standard operating procedures. Now, is that something that you consider, is that something that you are, you believe that you're good at? Yes, 100%. I actually just did a blog post on building a strategic plan. And anybody that I talk to, I just say, you know, everything you do needs to be strategic because otherwise you're not moving in any particular direction. I mean, you may be coincidentally, but if you don't know where you're going, there's no way you can be on your way to get there. So I think that strategy and planning and goal setting is paramount to not just real estate, but anything that you do, anything that's worthwhile. And so I, I, I'm very goal oriented. Um, I'm also in a mastermind group and I try to surround myself with people who will push me and I share my goals with anybody and everybody because I want people to hold me accountable. And I, that's, that's the way that I achieve my goals. And I've so far every time my, my perspective has changed completely, like from what, you know, what a good cash flow is. Initially, I wanted a thousand dollars a month and then I wanted three thousand dollars a month. And I thought that was a great amount of money for a stay at home mom. And now I'm like, I will be done when I make twenty thousand dollars a month in passive income. And that to me is true financial freedom. And so I think that when you start pursuing your goals, and you achieve them, it just opens up this whole new world to what you can potentially achieve. And it's just exponential growth from there, I think. Yeah. Well, and we, we just had uh, Mindy and Carl Jensen from 1500 Days uh, on. Uh, it hasn't, I don't think the podcast has aired yet, but one of the wonderful things that Mindy always says is that once you have, once you've sort of gotten to that point where you know, even if you have just a little bit of financial freedom where you don't, you know, maybe I've heard my friend Alex uh, 
refer to as FU money, where it doesn't mean you're going to sit on the couch uh, all day long playing video games or sit on the beach drinking pina coladas, but it, what it opens up is a whole world of you can take greater risks. You can work in jobs that you really, really love, not jobs that you have to work at. Absolutely. All right. So do you, are you a standard operating procedures kind of person? A hundred percent. Something that I, I work on every single day is my systems and I have a checklist before I'm done working every day. I just go through and I update everything and I'm, I'm an Excel person. I know there's, there's lots of things out there that could help me at lots of CRMs. There's lots of, you know, different tools that can help you with your accounting, with your task management. And I've found that I just don't really want to take the time to learn the new system. It just isn't worth my time. So I just use old fashioned Excel files and Gantt charts and, you know, graphs that show how far I've come to me. That's, that's a big thing. I, I archive everything. So every time I have a goal, every time I, even if it's just, I just read a book, no matter what it is, I archive it. And when I'm struggling and maybe doubting myself, I just go back and look at what I've done and what I've accomplished. And that's, you know, incredibly powerful, but I think systems are, are so important. And when I, when I cut corners and I don't update things, I I'm just nowhere near as productive as I could be. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now I'm, I'm very similar to the same way. I have a, a Google sheet that basically has my sort of daily tasks that I want to try and do. And there, even if it's just a five minute look on Zillow at, in this market and look for something contact, you know, I've got uh, notes to make contacts with other, other investors and things like that. So it's really small daily tasks lead to really, really big results. And I, I'm, I'm a big believer in that. So. Absolutely. So when you were getting yourself educated in real estate investing, is there any particular piece of knowledge that you acquired that you think really set yourself up for success? I think the biggest thing that I've learned is just that the possibilities are endless and no two deals have ever been the same for me. No, you know, not structured the same, not just, they're all so different and in anything that a title company will let you do, which I've never been told no is, is possible. And I think that having an open mind is, is the biggest thing that you can do. I, I talk to people all the time and they say, what are you looking for? And I, I give them numbers. I give them return, return criteria, but they're like, well, what are you, are you looking for single families? Are you looking for small multifamily? I said, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I'm not looking for anything in particular. And I, I think I kind of learned that because it, it took me almost a year to find a property that I wanted to flip because I thought I knew what I wanted. I, I bought the thing that I thought I wanted. I wanted a, a starter home. I wanted a, a really low price point, but selling that was a little bit of a challenge. And we kind of hit on that before finding the buyer, finding someone who can get qualified and then finding a bank that wants to do a small loan like that. So I kind of realized that I was looking for something that didn't even really make sense. And so I've tried to, but in, in you know, to me it did, but in, the big picture, it didn't. And so I try to just encourage people, keep your, keep your mind open. Don't make assumptions and then learn from the people that are succeeding. So how did you go about getting yourself educated when you were starting out? Uh, A lot of books, a lot of podcasts. And then I took, I took a course with white feather education, white feather investments that I'm actually working with them a little bit. Now I'm helping them with their online education and their courses. 
but they work with academy grads. Mostly right now, they're trying to work with just military members, veterans, things like that. And that was, you know, having that sort of network of like-minded people, like, and just people that really spoke my same language was huge for me to take it from just sort of a thing I did on the side to a full-term, a full-time business and just having them, their, their encouragement. That's where my mastermind came out of too. The mastermind that I'm a part of now came from that organization and what they've allowed, what they've helped me to achieve in such a short period of time continues to blow my mind. And it's, yeah, it's just been really great being around being, first of all, having a mentor. He's the, the mentor is the one who really helped me with that 10 unit. He's the one who encouraged me to get out there and do it. And he was there with me every step of the way. And that's what I try to do with people. Now I'm doing some, some coaching, a lot of new investor coaching, And to me, it's just important to get your foot in the door on that first deal, because if that first deal doesn't pan out, then there's probably not going to be a second deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, the law of the first deal and it's something that we've experienced is that when you're starting off, it's, uh, there's an enormous amount of fear of the unknown and, oh God, am I, am I going to lose a bunch of money or, you know, what do I not know? And there's a million things you're not going to know. You're going to like... The first couple of deals I've done, it's been, oh, wow, I had no idea that that cost was going to be there. But, you know, getting started with a smaller deal, it's not going to kill you. It, it's maybe, you know, you're maybe not going to be able to eat out that month because you've got a little bit bigger bill than you expected. And so I really encourage people to to find a way to start small, find a, a close carrot, someone who's doing what you want to be doing that you can sort of latch on to and learn from. And don't ex- and don't expect things for free. I have people contact me, you know, who are asking me to mentor them, and I'm like, you know, I- I'm I'm a busy guy. I'm a dad. I've got a full time job and my investing career. Find a way to add value to them. And if it's you know if it's paying for a little bit of coaching, I'm not against paying for for a little bit of mentorship. If you're because it will accelerate you. If you pick the right mentor, just pick somebody who's actually doing what you want to be doing, not somebody who did it 10 years ago and is now just making money teaching courses. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, too, what kind of comes with that coaching aspect, you know, if you're willing to go out and pay for a coach, you need to be ready to put in the work. You know, you need to be committed to that. And I think part of that commitment comes from what you're paying them, you know, that helps to hold you accountable, but it also needs to make sense. You know, there's guru programs out there for $30,000 that somebody who only wants to buy one property a year shouldn't, should not be doing that. I mean, it would take them years and years to get a return on that investment. So I think I, I believe in coaching, obviously I'm a coach and I have had great success with coaches but I think you need to find, just like you said, you need to find the right person and it needs to come at the right price tag. And there's a lot, a lot that goes into that relationship. Gotcha. All right, Aaron, thank you so much for sharing with us today. And you've got your coaching program. If people want to find out more about that, where should they go? They can go to my website. It's bcglobalinvestments.com. Um, I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, just Aaron Helly. And we will put all of that in the show notes. And once again, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. That was Aaron Helley from bcglobalinvestments.com. We thank her for her time. And if you get a chance to go check her out there at that website, I highly recommend it. She is, um, you know, she is 
a rock star. I mean, to go from, you know, basically zero to 19 doors in essentially a year and a half is just incredible. And I'm in awe. Um, so well done, Aaron. So key lesson learned for me in this interview was to make it, how important it is to make a strategic plan so that you, you're one of my early real estate investor mentors uh, used to always say, you know, uh, take massive indiscriminate action. And that's great. However, you really want to be at the very least taking massive indiscriminate action in a certain particular direction. Otherwise, you're just scattershot all over the place. Uh, and it's something I've struggled with, uh, you know, the shiny object syndrome. And you really want to sit down and say, all right, where do I want to be? And we often talk about this on this podcast is a lot of people are, are in love with real estate investing, but you really want to know what do I want my life to look like once I'm successful? Because the life of a house flipper is going to be very different from the, the life of a of a multifamily syndicator. The life of a multifamily syndicator is going to be very different from a single family rental owner or a passive investor in single in, in real estate syndication. So it's really important to sit down and, and, and ask yourself, you know, what, what do I want my life to look like once I'm successful? And Aaron, Aaron is right. If you go to bcglobalinvestments.com, she does have a, an article on writing a strategic plan. We'll link to it in the show notes. Highly recommend doing that. So as far as her key piece of knowledge that she needed to acquire that she really thinks set her up for success was the idea that the, the possibilities are endless. Once you, once you kind of crack the code and, and realize what's possible, you start to realize that the number of things that are, the things that you think are barriers to entry are not, and they're not, they're not, um, they're not obstacles. They're things to get over, but they're really not that big a deal. You know, with real estate investing, it comes down to, you know, money, finding deals, you know, all of those are surmountable problems. And once you learn how to climb that mountain, it's not going to be, it's not that hard to, to get over them. So just, just get out there and do it really. So how much money did it take for her to get started in her chosen niche. Her first property she bought for $64,000 all in and she brought she bought it uh, brand new. She admitted that she would probably not do that. Well, she she liked that she did it, but it's not something she would necessarily she doesn't think she needed to do that. And obviously now she has figured out how to leverage other people's money through hard money loans and things like that to uh, to keep moving. So how much time does she spend on her real estate endeavors now that it's up and running? You know, we didn't get into that during the podcast, but afterwards, uh, Aaron and I spoke and she said she spends about 20 hours a week on it. Now she is a stay at home mom uh, of two young girls. And so she, re she needs to be very strategic about where she spends her time. But it, it just goes to show that also that with real estate investing, you are, you're leveraging other people's time. You're leveraging other people's money. And that's one of the wonderful things about it is that once you're up and running, you can start to divorce a lot of your income from the time that you're spending on it. So could they do this strategy from anywhere in the world? I would say probably yes, uh, considering that Aaron is uh, currently in Monterey, California, and most of her real estate endeavors are happening in, in Tennessee, including active flips, which is uh, something that I'm in awe of. So, all right. Once again, thank you to Aaron Helley from bcglobalinvestments.com for uh, sitting down with us. We loved it. Uh, we're doing this all again next week. So let's hit the road. Oh.
And if you like this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you take just a few minutes and leave a review for us on iTunes. It's really simple to do. Just go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels.